Well, into our week two of Let's Talk About Sex series. And Hallie and I often joke that uh, the couple minutes before you come up here to stand and do a sermon of some kind, there's always this minute right before where you're filled with a bit of doubt and turmoil, and I always lean over to her and say, I could still run at this point. And I don't think I've ever been closer to that moment than this morning. But I am uh, actually, it was, it was just interesting. I'm glad to be here truly about that. I have to admit uh, that talking about sex from the pulpit in the church where my parents attend is not exactly the culmination of a lifelong dream. <laughs> Couldn't wait to do this when I was sorting out baseball cards as a youth. <laughs> Wasn't a lifelong dream either when I fell into all of this about 10 years ago when my department chair at Bethel came to me and he said, we just lost our professor. She ran, I think, to Baylor or to Rice or somewhere who was teaching a gender and sexuality class at Bethel. And he said, you are sort of the new guy in town, so this is your class now. <sighs> you know, baseball players, they for initiation, they sort of have to carry each other's bags when they're rookies like that. Apparently, uh, first-time profs have to teach about sex. So that was not my favorite initiation. Uh, professors often have to teach things that they really have no business teaching. And I was example A, B, C, and D about 10 years ago when I fell into this class on gender and sexuality at Bethel. But we jumped into the deep end of the pool. Uh, Students were grateful, and I have to say it's been a really incredible experience to have done that because over that time I have met with hundreds of students and seen literally thousands of papers. And there's students coming together from a wide variety of church backgrounds. I now teach it at Northwestern as well. It's funny, once you teach something like this, you're in high demand. <laughs> and all these church backgrounds, what uh, has been interesting is the commonality of experience, whether it was Catholic or Protestant, liberal or conservative, is that there was this shared experience year after year among my students. But unfortunately, I began to discover pretty early on that the shared experience maybe was not of the kind that I would have hoped. Because you sort of suspect, I think, from the headlines and what you see, that there's a fair amount of confusion and brokenness and pain and turmoil out there. But as students have cracked open and shared their stories, my breath has literally been taken away on occasion when they felt the freedom to say what they think, the lines that have been crossed, the abuse of their background, the addiction that was profound, uh, hearts fractured, attractions that are hard to understand, an identity that is confused, and anxiety running rampant. I don't think it's an exaggeration now that Over 10 years of doing this and being in rooms in schools and in churches, I sort of just now assume, it was probably five years into it, that I just learned to assume any room, any Christian room in which I walk is probably going to be primarily filled with questions and fractures and pain and turmoil, and I am in that pot as well. But even in the difficulty of all of it, I have really been grateful in these last 10 years of being in the classroom with these students because their questions have sort of this way of opening the box and forcing you to dive in with conversations that you otherwise wouldn't. I find it sometimes easier to talk in the classroom than I do with my own kids because these things are confusing and difficult and they have forced me, the students, to get into topics and research them in ways that I would have never planned on otherwise in life. So it's been hard to hear their stories, but one thing that I will say is it has been absolutely beautiful and it's been hopeful. 
which makes me grateful that Kevin has opened the box here. This doesn't happen very often in pulpits and in churches. It doesn't come to the table. And, and, and I think for sometimes for good reason, because it's a bit risky to open up the box from the pulpit in this context, not least of which because there can be misunderstandings and missed expectations when we're in this funny kind of one-way communication where I talk at you for 35 minutes. We can't be in dialogue. When I'm in class with my students, we just go back and forth and I teach teach concepts through conversation, and it is easier to get into some of those things that way, but sermons like this may prompt all kinds of questions, and this isn't a place that I can necessarily address them or we can talk about them. Uh, and we don't necessarily have the time either to give you some example of contrast. When I'm with my students for 14 weeks, it's three hours and 20 minutes every week, two class periods, hour and 40 minutes each, 14 weeks, we get about 50 hours of time together. And at the end of the semester, I'm always amazed when students say, can we have another semester? We didn't get as far as we would have liked into all of these topics. And by contrast, there's only two hours from the pulpit, but it does make me glad. I think you know that there's other contexts that we're going to be opening up this box in here at church. There is uh, resources on the website available for you to dig in further. There is uh, an Awaken class on Wednesday nights, Awaken Love, that Beth Moorhead will be leading. Um, there is a class on Sunday morning starting in mid-March at the 1045 hour in the Engage classroom where we're going to just, if, if you've got questions from these sermons, write them down and come to that Engage class and we will talk about them. Though Kevin mentioned that last week and he said, we will talk about them in that class. And I leaned over to Hallie and I said, yeah, by we, he means me. <laughs> but it'll be a good opportunity to do some of those things. And there are things we can do from the pulpit on this. And Kevin got us, I think, off to a great start last week. If you were here, you remember maybe some of what he talked about, and I can do a quick recap of those things. Two very important points that he got us started with, the first of which he mentioned last week that there really is nothing new under heaven and earth when it comes to these expressions and questions of sexuality in our culture. The questions we have now are quite consistent with the questions of the past. And Kevin took us into the book of Corinthians just a little bit and the city of Corinth where we saw prostitution and adultery and sexual unions outside of the covenant of marriage, very similar to the ways in which things were expressed today. And one of the key takeaways from that last week was to recognize that this historical pattern we see really flies in the face of kind of the spirit of the age we have in American culture that is suggesting we are somehow more enlightened today than they have been in the past. Old-fashioned, archaic, didn't understand, we have freedom, we are more enlightened relative to our sexuality today. And Kevin pointed out there's nothing new under heaven and earth, the expressions can be observed throughout history. There's another example we can give, uh, and recently in my class, it's been the last three years or so, that the topic of gender confusion and gender fluidity has been sort of all the rage of the questions. I can kind of track where we are as a culture based on the questions the students are coming with, and they weren't coming with these questions eight years ago. Now that was all the questions of class. And it's interesting uh, when you look back through history that this isn't the first time a culture has asked these kinds of questions about gender confusion and gender blurring and the fluidity. In fact, it's happened in major empires throughout history. And what's perhaps a bit troubling about that is that these questions tend to come when you look back through the historical pattern when a culture is sort of nearing its end. 
And so the Roman Empire featured early in its life very masculine pictures and portraits of Roman Empire, uh, of the emperors. But you look later on in the four or five hundreds of the same portraits of emperors and they've moved to androgyny or gender-free kind of portraits of the emperors. <clears throat> in the Greek uh, culture, you see the sculptures being very defined masculine and feminine early in its culture. Later in culture, the sculptures are, again, gender-free. Blurring of gender lines destabilized the Weimar Republic of Germany in the early 1900s. It was one of the last sort of moves of this cultural leadership, and then the thing imploded from there. I was reading uh, a scholar the past couple of weeks. as somebody with whom I would agree on absolutely nothing, typically speaking. Uh, she is a very liberal scholar. We would not share a lot of views on things, but I thought she was incredibly helpful. Her name was Camille Paglia. And she notes this about these sort of stages in the culture where things begin to shift. She says, people who live in such times feel they're very sophisticated. They're very cosmopolitan. Homosexuality, heterosexuality, so what? Anything goes. But from the perspective of historical distance, you can see that it's a culture that no longer believes in itself. So history suggests that instead of becoming more enlightened as a culture, we're going through a pattern where it's all been done before. And in all of this, we see sort of this deconstruction of the great claim of enlightenment that we are getting smarter and stronger and certainly sexual freedom will lead to a happier life. Because my thousands of papers from my students would suggest exactly the opposite is true. Their lives and relationships are fraying at the edges. I think our lives and relationships often fraying at the edges and unraveling altogether. This is not an enlightenment. This is a pattern. Which begs the question, in the midst of all of this, how do we start to carve out a pathway towards renewal and hope to refresh with a vision of the wonder and the beauty and the joy of sexual union as it's intended but as a gift from God? For sex is... Good. And when engaged in a way God intends, it brings about with it sort of this beautiful and unencumbered and non-confused, peaceful joy. There is shalom in sex. Which leads us to the second thing Kevin talked about last week. If we're going to start carving out this pathway in our sexuality, where do we begin? And he just took us into that deep end of the pool where he began to explore that phrase, one flesh in the biblical text and what it means. And he talked at length last week about the idea that there's more than a physical action taking shape in our, in our sexual unions. There is a relational union. There's a spiritual union. I've heard a writer once talk about it saying that sexual union is this physical physical uh, union that brings about it as something beyond the physical communion between two people. There's more going on than skin to skin, and that's not something we talk about much in our culture today. I often say, and it's probably stupid, but if I, if I was Satan, and I'm glad I'm not, but if I was, I would uh, always and constantly invite people to what they think is going to be wholeness, and it's actually going to wreak havoc on the soul. So freedom, and it's just about a physical act. And then I read my students' papers and see where they are, and it's tough, but it's hopeful. So if Kevin addressed the question last week of what happens in sexual union, 
we're going to stay within that phrase and address the question this morning of the function and the purpose of sexual union in God's beautiful kingdom. And said another way, if Kevin handled the what of last week, I'm going to try to handle the why. And if it's not going well, I'll just leave at that point. But what we can do in handling the why and trying to think of a place to begin in all of this, I thought, well, you know, the Bibles are a pretty helpful place for understanding these things and looking first at where one flesh union shows up in the biblical text, because where something shows up first, it gives us a sense of what is going on and what is the the meaning underneath it that helps us understand the flow of the biblical text moving forward. And so one flesh union shows up in this Genesis passage, and we're going to read that now. So I would love, this doesn't happen in churches very often anymore. I would love for you to stand while we read the Genesis 2 text. I noticed that from Kevin last week, and this will be coming out of the NIV. I don't have it in my notes, so I'm going to turn around and look at the screen with you, and uh, let's read through this passage. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Let's pray as we jump into this here together. And so, God, by your spirit, a spirit of peace and a spirit of truth and a spirit of grace, all mixed together in a beautiful pot of your kingdom, we ask for all of those things this morning and for wisdom in the way forward, that in the pain and the fractures and the turmoil that I think we all carry. Ask for a deep sense of your wholeness and hopefulness and truth. We pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, I think uh, the thing that we can say after reading that passage is that if we're going to understand sort of the why God created sexual union or one flesh to begin with, we need to see that in this broader passage, it shows up as part of this 15 through 25 set of verses in Genesis 2, where the passage is really about the man and the woman uh, receiving this command to watch over God's Garden of Eden. Uh, it happens at the end of chapter 1 in Genesis, where they're given this c- command to co-rule, and in Genesis too, we see a little bit more detail about the creation then of man and woman and how this took shape. But the broader passage is all about stewardship of God's garden. They are to guard or in the Hebrew, watch over his beautiful and ever expanding garden of delight, the garden of Eden. 
Another way to say it is that sexual union first shows up in the context of stewardship, which might sound weird. I don't think about it in that way, but I figure the biblical writers are nothing if not inspired and intentional. So what are they trying to tell us by putting it here? What in the world does sexual union have to do with stewarding God's creation? Well, I think a few things we can say about this, and I'm going to just stay out of the the sexual union piece of it for a little bit to just draw out or draw forth this idea of stewardship that's in this passage, because in so doing, then we connect the one flesh part of it more clearly. And I recognize as we walk through this that it's probably going to prompt maybe another 45 sermons or so that we could use, and that's rubbish that we can't do all of that from the pulpit. Uh, Kevin's out of town. If anybody knows the way to his house, we could probably just go sit all afternoon at the bonfire at his house and keep talking about this stuff. I'm sure he would love if his entire church was talking about sex at his house, so I think we're in. Anyway, Genesis 2.15 says that the man is to watch over, as I said, or guard the garden, to steward it, to, do, uh, to, to protect it, and to just to stay away from one tree, the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, which is interesting because it says that if he eats of it, they eat of it, they will surely die, but then we read a little later that they eat of the fruit and they don't die, and so what's going on in the passage, and now I'm going to need another sermon. But then it goes to Genesis 2.18, and it says that it's not good that man should be alone. There needs to be a suitable helper. And on this one, we can stop a bit, because I think when we, at least for me, when I read this passage for maybe just first blush in the English, and, and the way I think I understood it for many years growing up, is that this passage is all about alleviating the man's loneliness, He's like, man, I'm so alone in the garden. I mean, it's nice when God comes down in the cool of the day for a quick walk, but then he leaves me hanging there and I don't have any kind of companionship. And this whole passage is all about God realizing, I'm so sorry, I already finished the six days of creation and I forgot you might need a companion. And so we're going to find one for you as if it's about loneliness. But to think of this passage about loneliness is to extract it out or divorce it from the context of stewardship. So to stay in that context when it says that it's not good that the man should be alone, the text is indicating that it's not good that the man should be alone in watching over the garden. It's too big of a task for him alone. There needs to be a suitable helper that is there with the man because this is a big deal to steward all of creation. We need another, a suitable helper. And this is where it gets even more fun in the word helper, because again, we might just misunderstand that when we look at it from the English, because when I hear the word helper, I immediately think of this idea of maybe an executive assistant, somebody who uh, kind of functions underneath the lead, someone who is subservient to the other, a secondary person who's going to be doing all the work that the original man doesn't want to do. But we get a little closer to the original language of this if you were to look at the King James passage and see that the word helper is translated as help meet in that passage. And if we take another step, then from the King James to the Hebrew, we see this beautiful word, this compound word that is in the original language. And the word will be up on the screen in just a second. It is azer konegdo, help meet. And here's the literal translation of the word help meet. Remember, we're trying to think of we need another steward for the garden. And so an azer help is a strong and powerful help without which humankind would die. 
And the Konegdo piece is the piece about that is like him, but opposite from him. Of the same essence as the man, but different from the man. And so the idea here, when, when you see the word azer show up in the text as a help, it's this idea that if this help doesn't come, there isn't going to be any future. There is no hope. In fact, about the 19 other times the word azer is used in the text, it's being used of God himself. Not as one who is an executive assistant, but as one who is necessary to the scene. And so that Psalms passage, where it says, I lift my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? Where does my azer come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So the idea of this azer connecto is that it's not about loneliness. It is that there needs to be somebody who can stand side by side, watching over God's creation, like the man bringing all of the essence of humankind to the table, but Konegdo is somehow different, filling all of these gaps. It's the perfect complement. Different in design, standing side by side, watching over God's garden. It's not about loneliness necessary, because then we see all these animals come parading through, right? Which is confusing, like, why do we have to bring the giraffes on by in this passage? Because the reality is, is I can get some measure, if this is about companionship, I can get some measure of companionship from like my four cats at home, which sounds like weird now when I say that out loud, because now I'm afraid that I'm getting a little bit of companionship now from the cats. What happens when I'm 97? Do I turn into that weird cat person, right? Where you all come in and visit me as a shut in and there's 43 cats in my house. I can get some companionship from my cats, but I can't stand side by side with my cats and watch over the family. And that's the idea of the stewardship here. We find, after the animals come through, that no suitable helper can be found. And so God says, all right, I'm going to go ahead and put you to sleep. And he pulls out from the side a piece of Adam, flesh, part of him, and draws forth this woman. And it says that he fashions the woman. And now we have a whole other sermon because God formed the man and he fashioned the woman. And those are two very different words within the Hebrew language when we see some of the intrinsic masculinity, femininity going on in those words. So come to the Engage class like in a few weeks and we'll talk about that stuff. But it's amazing what's all in this text. She's drawn forth and we see the Azer Konegdo bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. For this reason, you will leave your mother and father. You will exist in this one flesh relationship as well because we just need more stewards because this infinite God is infinitely expanding and his infinite playground of delight is going to fill the universe with his glory. Keep bringing the stewards. Leave and cleave. One flesh, side by side, we need many of you to govern the creation. Last part of the stewardship passage, it describes them as naked and unashamed. Which again is sort of this weird, we chuck it into the end of the text. Why is that here? What do we need that for? Is that just for Michelangelo to paint something on the Sistine Chapel? Except naked and unashamed there has this beautiful connotation that it says at the end of the stewardship passage that the man and the woman, uh, again, in the original language, it would be rendered that they were fully open to God and fully open to one another, vulnerable, without fear, And in that place, with God's power flowing through them, they could see the way forward in guarding his creation with wisdom. They're naked and unashamed. God, I need your power. I mean, do any of us, is anybody else scared about the future around here? (laughs) Ah, I don't know what the future holds. 
And so the posture, and we could have a whole other sermon about this, the posture of life is one of naked and unashamed. It's really interesting because naked shows up in Genesis 3 as well. As soon as they eat of that fruit, they realize they're naked, but it's a very different word in the Hebrew. In this way, in their nakedness, they untethered themselves from God. They believed they could see the pathway forward on their own. And in that nakedness, they realized that they are subject to the future without any hope or fullness of God at their back. And now they're afraid. But the companions are meant to stand side by side in all of this. So why then sexual union as part of the stewardship piece? If it's more than physical, if there is a relational and spiritual union, what is it about sexual union that is part of God's stewardship? Because isn't it just about the man and the woman to enjoy one another? Isn't that the gift? And on some level it is. You know, it's funny, when I hear sexual union talked about in Christian contexts, it's most often related to one of two purposes or one or two functions. One of the functions is procreation that God gave this gift of sexual union uh, for procreation. And now we have another sermon, because what do we do in the realities of infertility in our world? So we say these things out loud sometimes from the pulpit, and oftentimes we don't recognize the many, 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 many people that are wondering, am I under God's curse? Maybe if I can just pray like Hannah, I'll have a family. Or I'll just study Elizabeth, or I'll study... Sarah and these barren women in the text. And we don't see that there's so much going on in the barrenness that has nothing to do with having a family. It's about God creating a way forward into the future where there was no way. One of the many times he does that. So just because you can't procreate doesn't mean you can't enjoy the gift. And now we have another hour (laughs) together to unwind some of the pain and turmoil of that. I recognize I can't talk about the procreation without at least saying that out loud because I know of the pain. Hallie and I didn't even know that we could have kids. We walked in that pain for a while. And then God went all Abraham and Sarah on us for some reason. We have five now. (laughs) And we're 47. And recently we had a scare where, you know, we thought, man, maybe it's happening again. This will never end. We were waking up in the middle of the night saying, I'm going to be 65 and they're still in the house. So, but it looks like five is it (laughs) for now. Procreation is a reason for it. Companionship is the second thing that's often mentioned, and that is a profound reason for sexual union. But neither of those reasons were in this one flesh piece of the stewardship so much. There was another reason, and I think we miss it. And I'm hopeful. I've been skirting around the edges of this in my classes for a while, and to the extent that we talk about it is the extent that some of the questions begin to get answered. And some of the relationships begin to make sense. It takes a while, time, one sermon doesn't do this sort of thing. But I was very grateful for a book that I read uh, this last week called Venus and Virtue. And it was about the sanctification and beauty of sexuality. And it quoted all of these theologians that I've somehow missed my entire life when they talk about sexual union. From C.S. Lewis to Timothy Keller to Alvin Plantica and Richard Hayes and all of these people saying these things. But somehow they don't make it into the latest tweet about this stuff. So I read them. Uh, it was difficult to read. I felt like my head was going to explode because, again, mostly I'm reduced down to like texting messages now. I don't read anything of <laughs> substance anymore. But I kind of got into it and thought, oh, my head hurts, but this is really hopeful. And so I'm going to share a few of their thoughts now about this why of sexual union. Why did God put it? What does it have to do with stewardship in this? Well, the first thing we need to talk about in This is to recognize that when God asked them to watch over God's garden, 
he is not asking them just to make sure that the potatoes have been planted and the tomatoes are on the vine and the lions are not eating the gazelles. Though I would assume that's part of the deal, right? Stop eating the gazelles, you're wreaking havoc in the garden. But as theologians talk about this, as we are image bearers and garden watchers, the man and the woman are actually to mediate God's presence and God's reality to the world. That the world will understand God because they can see the image of God in the man and the woman. Different, bringing different dimensions to the table, but in seeing the fullness of man and woman side by side, walking together forward, the image of God is there. They are to mediate God's presence to the world. So what you see in the relationships, what you see in the male, what you see in the female, actually is seeing the very face of God. It's mediating God's presence in this world. So we reflect his presence. So it's interesting when you do studies of children and how often the connections of how a child thinks about God is directly related to how their parents mediated or their grandparents mediated the presence of God. So I encourage you as grandparents in here, keep walking out the journey. It's not over yet. The journey doesn't all include golf and crossword puzzles in Florida, though I really like that stuff. There is no such thing as retirement in the biblical text. It's not there. Keep walking it out. Keep shining the light. So often kids actually really need their grandkids, oftentimes more than even their parents, to mediate the face of God to them. So I saw a study out of Notre Dame this week that 1%, 1% of children who grow up in a household that is not religious will then also be religious later in life, 1%. It was 82% of kids who grow up in a religious household end up being active in their faith later on. And some of the first pictures of God, I read this really matter. I read, ran across this quote where it said, by loving and caring for our children, we make manifest to them the solemn truth that love exists. And if they see that love exists, it's possible and easier for them to see that there is a being who is love. Experiencing love allows our children to know the one who is love. Parenting is just one of the many expressions of mediating God's face to the world. That's part of watching over his garden is to mediate his presence. The church is meant to mediate God's presence to the world. It's another place. It's not just for parenting. That's only one spot. We are described in the book of First Peter chapter 2 as a royal priesthood. And it's always been the function of the priest in the Old and in the New Testament and throughout theological history that the priest mediates the presence of God to the world. The church is a royal priesthood mediating the presence. Too often in churches over all of my time in ministry, what's been mediated are things like strife or division or power or gossip. I read my students' papers, ask them to reflect on their background in church, and that would be one of the primary themes. But it's part of also what has me so grateful to be in relationship with people like Kevin and Shelley and the people here on staff, there is a way in which we can mediate the presence. But those are just the people that I know. I wish I knew all of your <laughs> names. Because there is a different way to do life together moving forward. Married and single, because single people don't receive the junior varsity Holy Spirit. Kids and adults, grandparents, widows, orphans, all together. Bonded together in the prayers of Jesus, who fervently prays for the love that his followers will show, because why? It'll mediate my presence to the world. We get so concerned about, the world doesn't know about God anymore. Maybe we sometimes need to look in the mirror 
if we're the mediators, what do I mediate to my children? It's not always the presence of God. So Jesus fervently, fervently prays for that. And sexual union, the why, yes, about procreation, and yes, about companionship. But it shows up in this passage of stewardship because sexual union is somehow meant to also mediate the presence of God to this world. To give a picture to the world of what this beautiful Godhead must be like. Comes in that passage, C.S. Lewis and Leithard and others write these words. I'll just read some of the words I read this week. I'm not sure if your heads will explode like mine did, but I'll read them. Anyway, keep in mind that sexual union is this outward-looking mediation of who God is to the world. So Lewis writes... The father, son, and spirit relationship is the archetype of all human relationships, including sexual and romantic ones. In Christianity, God is a dynamic, pulsating activity of life, almost like a drama, a kind of dance. Timothy Keller writes, The life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. Each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. There is this eternal movement in the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit for one another, which is always flowing unceasingly towards us. And in that love, there are many kinds of love, but one of them is the Eros kind of love. It is a longing for each other within the Godhead. So sexual intercourse is a sensory pleasure to be sure, but it's deeper than that. For it contains the love of Eros, which is the desire for the beloved, him or herself, not the pleasure they can give. Eros desires the good of the other, not simply the good of the self. The bridegroom in the biblical text longs for the bride, not what the bride can give. Song of Solomon says of this beautiful dance, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. And the point that theologians are making is that sexual union is meant as this incredible reflection of a Trinitarian life of God, this beautiful dance that is characterized by a mystery of difference but unity, mutual sharing, mutual giving, always pouring out, passionately pursuing love that flows unceasingly around and catches up everything in its wake. And when I say that, My head explodes, and it sounds nothing like the sexual unions of our culture today. I certainly have never seen this portrayed on the latest binge watch of Netflix I've done, (laughs) where orange is the new blue or yellow or black, (laughs) or whatever it is. And we certainly maybe have not been helped by the 50 shades of chartreuse or whatever that series is. It's not expressed there because unfortunately sexual union in our culture is not this beautiful mutual other-centered gift of delight where two people are sharing not because of what can be received in that moment but this beautiful dance of other-centered giving in those moments because for my students as they talk about they understand it to be this thing of a desire for self-fulfillment. And they're confused by that, filling a physical desire maybe, filling a relational hole I have, filling a loneliness I feel, filling a fear that I am isolated, filling a need to be seen, filling a hole in my identity. And sex can be exploitative, as we've seen in the very difficult hashtag MeToo movement. And sometimes even we might just romance another person, even if we're in covenant with them, not because we see them, but because we would like them to fill a need in us. 
Think about all these ways, myself included, that sex has been thought of and used, looking inward, not outward. And if sex is meant to mediate for the world a picture of the Trinitarian love of God, then all of this self-focus distorts not just the gift, it distorts the giver. We don't see this beautiful God. I live in a pretty self-focused world, as you do. I contributed to it probably as you do. Most of our relationships are characterized by the demands that are put upon us. Demands in work, demands in school, demands in relationship, demands in church, demand, demand, demand. We're making demands of each other all the time. What can you do for me? Scratch my back. We leave work after 40 years. We get a watch, and we're never remembered again. And it's just this constant, what can you do for me? And if I'm not careful, God just becomes this being who is another one of these uh, relationships I have that demands stuff of me. Things to which I need to attend. So I tend to work in relationships and church and family and God and all of these demands and I'm just tired and I can't wait to go to sleep if I can sleep at all. Because God is here making demands, using us to fulfill something in himself, his glory or whatever, and I end up in these distorted misperceptions. But what if it was true that this beautiful Trinitarian God existed in this relationship of ever-flowing outward love? And that the demands that we think we see from God are not demands at all. They are invitations from a beautiful shepherd who knows the ways to walk in which we can be whole. You ever had just this other-centered desire for somebody in your life who's walking in fractured and brokenness and you would even die for them to be made whole? This is the God that we serve, ever outward flowing and sexual union is supposed to be this beautiful mediated picture of this God who is wildly passionate for us. I ask my students often, when is the last time that you were in the presence of somebody who saw you? And when is the last time you were in the presence of somebody who loved you? And so often the answer is I can't remember. They don't know what it's like to have an unconditional love flow towards them, not to permit them to do all things. We get confused about unconditional love. It's not a permissive love. An unconditional love is a love that is always flowing regardless. We'll continue to seek out your wholeness. We'll pursue you all the days of your life. It is the love of the father of the prodigal son who will run towards the son as soon as that son turns. It is always flowing outward. It doesn't permit all things. It calls to wholeness all day long. Live in my life. I will never give up on you, ever. It's by his grace that we are saved of these things in our lives. But when is the last time you've tasted the love of God? I asked my students. <laughs> you know, very few have, as I said, but the ones that have are interesting. There's a twinkle in their eye. There's a certainty of the spirit. There's a peace of the soul. They're not afraid because perfect love has cast out fear. They know of a love The kind of love that Paul was praying so fervently for in Ephesians when he says, when I think of all of this, I fall on my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of heaven and earth. I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you in his inner strength with the Spirit. Then Christ will make a home in your hearts as you trust him, and your roots will grow deep, and into God's love you will grow strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide and how long, how high and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. But if you do, 
if you do, you will be made complete in the fullness and the life, the power that comes from God. Our sexual unions are broken and fractured. There's no two ways about it. I wish I could say something different. The confusion and the pain and the turmoil. And it makes me ask the question, why do we work on our marriages? <laughs> and we should. But it's not just so we can have a good marriage. It's because the world desperately needs to see a picture of a beautiful, other-centered, Trinitarian God whose love is ever and unceasingly flowing towards others for wholeness. So I can't see it. I don't know it. Will you show me? Church, people, marriages, I've forgotten what this God is like. So I'll close with a story this morning that'll set us up for next week. Hopefully, <laughs> some hope in the midst of all of this, too. Uh, I used this story with our youth here at church uh, last week, uh, too, and it's probably, again, a silly story, but I'll, I'll roll with it nonetheless. Um, those Lego kits that are in like Target and Toys R Us and Amazon and all these places, you know those Lego kits that are now like $4,000 just to get like the land speeder from Star Wars? It's like, oh gosh, you know, kids saw Star Wars and they need everything and so I'm going to get, you know, and then save my money. Well, um, these kits are great and I love these kits. We um, we actually, my, my mother got our boy, Samuel and Simon, the kit of the Millennium Falcon. I mean, that's one of those that's, you know, three figures. It's going to cost a lot. Uh, it's the kind of kit only grandparents can buy. And, uh, and so they got this kit, and it's like, you know, six million pieces. And in these pieces of the kit, if you, it's this gift that's being given by the giver, and there's really only one way to put it together. All right, there's the instructions and walk this way. The commands of the Lego instruction booklet are this invitation to experience the wonder of the Millennium Falcon. They're not there to prove something about the creators of Lego somewhere in Scandinavia, okay? They're there so that this incredible joy can be experienced. Just walk in this way, follow the instructions. You can't imagine what you'll all see. And they did, and they begin to put it together, and pretty soon you see the little chessboard where Chewie and, and R2 are fighting it out over these, you know, this this monster chest, and you see the smuggling compartment where Han and everybody hid at that time, and you see the gun gun turret where Luke learned a little bit of the force at that point, and the wonder of this kid is unfolding. You can't believe the gift you've been given until it's now time to start bringing all sorts of other stuff into the kit. And pretty soon you're pulling from the land speeder. And then I watched my kids, Samuel and Simon. They're like, well, we could take just a few of the pieces from the kit and we could create a little bomb. And uh, and then we'll bomb the Millennium Falcon. And pretty soon, you know, <laughs> you're hoping for the force for the Falcon because it's getting destroyed. And, uh, and there's all these things going on. And over time, all of a sudden, what's left is this incredible rubble of Legos. Have you ever been into a house where there's one huge drawer? It's like 20 by 20 that's just filled with Legos. I once asked my kids, I said, I'll tell you what, I will pay you $3 for every kit you can put back together. And we had some fun with it until it came to the point of them saying, um, Dad, I don't think we can. It's too overwhelming. I've put too many different Legos in too many different places. It all seemed good at the time. But I don't even, I don't begin to know how to put it back together. And as I deal with our young people and myself and my kids and everywhere we go, it feels like there's one big Lego box of sexuality. They don't have the first clue how to put it all back together. Next week, we'll talk about the putting it back together, what that can look like, the hopefulness, because there's one thing that I know. In all of my own fear and confusion and turmoil and pain, and I don't know which way to turn, there's one who came. His name is Jesus. 
And his name literally means salvation. And everywhere he went, things were getting set right. C.S. Lewis does a beautiful job in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Everywhere Aslan went, creation was being set right. So as I open up that Lego box of the soul, there is hope. If he can defeat death, he can put the whole thing back together. So come next week, we'll talk about the putting back together of the Lego box of our sexuality so that we together can mediate the beautiful, loving face of God to this world in increasing ways.